Hey, Reality Family, welcome once again to our online gathering, and thank you for joining us for the teaching portion today. If you were with us last week, we started to, we looked at the storyline in the Gospel of Mark, that Mark introduces Jesus as this king who is bringing the kingdom of God, and then he sets Jesus out on the road where Jesus is meeting people, and he's doing miracles, and he's getting the expectations for what this inbreaking kingdom might look like. Uh, and the expectations are going up and up and up. And we looked in the past two weeks at the two climaxes of that, where Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. He says, you are this long-awaited king. And then in chapter 11, uh, Jesus goes into Jerusalem to great fanfare. And these are the climax moments in the Gospel of Mark. But both of them also contain a hinge passage where Jesus sets the expectations to say, I'm not only going up, but my life now has to go down. I am going to have to suffer and not only suffer, but die, as he says in Mark chapter 8. And so last week we looked at why does Jesus have to suffer? Why does he take this path of downward mobility, as Henry Nouwen calls it? And why, as his disciples, does he ask us to come with him and take that path with him as well? And today we're going to talk about the second part of that. Why does Jesus have to die? And uh, there's three reasons for us talking about this uh, today. The first is, uh, you might be asking, why are we talking about this before Easter? Isn't this usually something that we talk about on Good Friday, where we focus on the crucifixion of Jesus? And we will, but in the Gospel of Mark, uh, starting in chapter 8, Jesus starts to focus on this idea himself. In chapter 8, he does it, and then two more times before he actually dies, he predicts his death. And he tries to tell the disciples that this is where he's going. And so he's emphasizing it. And he's asking the disciples to see all of the actions and activities that he's doing through the lens of his suffering and death. And by extension, he's offering that to us, that we are supposed to be seeing all of his actions trending in that direction and in through that lens. And so the gospel writer uh, is asking us to do that. And so we're talking about it today. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 8, if, if you go back and read it, it says, uh, it is necessary, Jesus said, it is necessary that he suffers and dies. So Jesus is not just going down this path on accident or as a victim, but he has a sense of divine purpose for going in this direction. So why is there this sense that Jesus has to go and die? So that's what we'll explore today. The second two reasons why we need to talk about this um, are, are similar but different. And the first is that the, the death of Jesus in our culture is a very offensive idea. It's an offensive idea to us modern people who live 2,000 years after Jesus and don't practice uh, these types of sacrifices. So this idea that Jesus would have to die, that there's somehow blood involved and that this could be a good thing, uh, it, it's completely backwards for us. As one critic of Christianity put it, it sounds like divine child abuse and it's gross. And so we need to talk about it to see, is there any relevance for us as modern people? Um, the, the third reason is, is uh, opposite, but also uh, linked to that one. It's that the death of Jesus, for many of us who are Christians, actually were quite the opposite. We, we are maybe too casual with this idea. You have, might have grown up in church, and so you hear every Sunday, every Easter, but also every you know, three times a, a Sunday, we sing songs about Jesus dying. And so it just becomes this rote thing. It becomes something that we are very comfortable with. Um, but we need to actually become uncomfortable and think hard. Why does Jesus actually have to die? Um, it, it is quite a bizarre thing. And, and so I want to explore it again today. And to do that, we're going to do uh, to try to to take the emphasis and the importance that Mark seems to place on Jesus death. 
Uh, and as well, uh, realize that in our culture, it sounds bizarre and that many of us as Christians um, have come, become too comfortable with it. We're going to do two things. The first is that we're going to go back into the backstory. Um, Jesus, again, he comes 2000 years ago. Uh, he comes into a completely different culture, into a different time with a different language. But he comes into a story as well. Uh, the story of the Hebrew scriptures. And so we, we're going to see what Jesus' death means, not to us 2,000 years later uh, first, we'll talk about that at the end, but what it meant in his culture and what it means in that story. And this is another opportunity for us, as I've talked about already in this series, to uh, drop our chronological snobbery. We are coming two years later, and maybe you find Jesus' death very, very disgusting. Or maybe, like you, like I said, you find it something that you're like, yeah, this is what it means to be a Christian. What's new under the sun? I ask you to drop your chronological snobbery and re-enter into the story to see if we might see Jesus anew. And it might bring new uh, beauty and awe to us for what it means that he is the king and brings the kingdom. The second uh, thing that we're going to do to try to help us with this is I'm going to use this whiteboard behind me to draw out some pictures. And this just helps us to engage with the text in a different way and the ideas that we're going to be talking about in a different way. And uh, I know that many of us have different learning styles as well. Some of the people in our church uh, uh, draw while, while I preach sometimes and try to just engage uh, their gifts and skills with what God's word is saying. And so I encourage you, if that's you, um, or even if it's not you, anybody, to grab a piece of paper, grab some markers or some uh, crayons, or a pencil and a pen, and try to redraw some of these things that I'm going to be poorly drawing. Maybe you can draw them much better and, and engage with the material and think through it in a new way. Okay, so let's get started. In the beginning of the story of the Bible, we're introduced first to a character, and that character is God. Now, this God uh, is someone who's existed before all time. He reigns and rules all over all things. He's the source of all goodness. Uh, he is a source of creativity and love. And God in the story of the Bible or in the imagination of the Bible lives in this place. It's called heaven. And so we'll say this is like God's space. And we're introduced to a second space in the story. Uh, this space, we will call it Earth. This uh, space is, is described, as you might remember me saying, tohu by tohu wabohu. It is wild and waste. So it is a, an uninhabitable space. And so God, as this God of creativity and love who wants to share himself with the world, uh, creates a space of in, in, uh, where, where earth can be inhabited, not tohu wabohu, but a new space where he can come into earth. Uh, and it's this overlap space called the Garden of Eden in the story. Um, and it's a place that's full of trees. It's very lush and beautiful. And God creates this third character in, or the second character, people to live in this space, to be in relationship with him. But the, the goal of humanity is also to live out and reflect God into the world, that they are to be relationship with God in Eden. And then they're to reflect that into the world, that Eden would actually increase, that God's space in the world would increase. And there would be new pockets of shalom that are popping up all over the world. But we're introduced also to a third character. This character, we'll call it the serpent. Now, we're not told where this character comes from, but he uh, is doing the opposite of what God is doing. While God is trying to encourage people to bring shalom to the world and to reflect him, he asks the question, he starts asking questions and questioning the people, is this your job or instead would it be wiser for you to try to become like this holy God? Why does he get to be God? Why do you reflect him? Why instead can't you be the pinnacle of creation? 
And this holy God, because the people do this, this is part of what the Bible calls sin or rebellion. God, they're rebelling against God. And so God kicks them out of his presence. They can't be in the presence of the holy God. Other than, uh, otherwise, that would mean certain death. And so God actually sends them out of his place. He kicks them out of the relationship with them. And so he kicks them out of here uh, and puts them into this space where they are now underneath the serpent. They're in this uh, land of Tohu Wabohu all by themselves. And they're not just cast out, but they're, the Bible uses this word that they are cursed, that there is a curse over them. And so we have a new twofold problem as human beings that we are cast out of God's presence, the presence that we were made for, but we're also cursed. And, and so the question actually becomes now, instead of being in God's love, loving presence, how can we be freed from being underneath the serpent? And the serpent actually represents something bigger in the story of the Bible, that there is this dark force, that these dark forces in our world that are reigning and ruling over the earth? How can we become free from them? And then the second question is, how can we actually come back to this space? How can we get back into an Edenic space where we can meet God and re-engage in the task of being fully human? And these two questions will uh, mobilize much of the rest of the storyline of the Bible, but also the life of Jesus. So the Bible goes out setting to, or sets about uh, to answer these questions. And one of the first places we can look to see how it answers this is in the story of God's people in Egypt. And so we have God's people who are out here in the, in the earth. Um, they are outside of God's reign and rule. Um, they, and they are in, in Egypt. Now, Egypt isn't necessary, uh, necessarily a bad place. Um, like you could go there on vacation and it would be OK. But in this specific scenario, God's people are kind of there. They find themselves enslaved and they find themselves enslaved to a character named Pharaoh. I hope I spelled that right. I've been spelling it wrong all week. But uh, Pharaoh becomes like this serpent. He is uh, like a beast. He's described beastly in the story, this terrible ruler. And he's oppressing the people. They are they are chained. They are chained to him. They're enslaved by him. And so what God's people do in this story is they cry out. They cry out to God and they say, come and save us. Please liberate us from Pharaoh. And so God does send a liberator. He chooses one person, Moses, and he meets him in this holy space. If you remember, the tree that he meets God is this this uh, place that's like Eden, this tree that's on fire. I'm not going to draw it. I'll save you from uh, my terrible drawing. But God goes to meet him in this holy space to refine him. And then God sends him back out. God sends him out uh, to talk to, to speak to Pharaoh and to break these chains as the liberator. And if you remember, he says two things to Pharaoh. Number one, he says, let my people go, break these chains in order that they can come and worship me, that they can meet God. And then uh, Moses does this through uh, signs that God is more powerful than the dark forces. That's what Moses is doing in all of the signs that he's doing. God is, is more powerful than Pharaoh, but he's also more powerful than the gods of uh, Egypt themselves. And so there's nine different plagues that God does or signs. And the final one uh, that God is going to do um, is uh, that after Pharaoh has again and again denied God's people to go free, is that God is going to repay Pharaoh for what he does at the very beginning of the story. The very beginning of the story, he wants to keep God's people enslaved. And so he kills all the firstborn boys, uh, all the boys that they have. 
Um, and so God at the, at the last uh, sign says that he is going to um, repay Pharaoh and all the firstborn children in Egypt will die. Everybody in here is going to pay for this, uh, this, this um, enslavement to the dark forces. And it, very interestingly in the passage, um, it says that God is actually going to ju- judge Pharaoh or God, ju- judge God's people or judge everybody who lives on the earth. It says that God is going to judge the dark forces. It's these participate the pharaoh's participation with the dark forces and egypt's participation in enslaving people that god is actually going to judge and we and we interestingly see that even though pharaoh is an absolutely terrible figure in the story he becomes just a pawn he is actually also a victim he is also enslaved to these dark forces and god is going to judge them um, by repaying pharaoh for what he's done and everybody over here but god also says at the same time that there's a way out there's a way to not be judged by God and to not have um, this plague happen to you. And that's through the, the blood of the lamb. And so <clears throat> God, uh, in, he, gives the, he gives the Israelites um, a command and he says to them, what I want you to do is to take this lamb and to kill it and to put the blood on your doorposts. And when I come to show that I am greater than uh, the dark forces of the world, this will save you and all your children. The blood of the lamb will cover the firstborn children. And this is a story that they would continually uh, celebrate at Passover. And so this is the story of God's people in Egypt. Egypt. God eventually does do this, and it allows his people to leave. And Jesus is entering this exact same story when he comes in the Gospel of Mark. And a key passage for us to understand this is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Sorry, 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, ransom language in the Bible is used for this exact same thing, for the freeing of slaves, for the liberating of war captives and, and paying off debt. And so by using this language of ransom, saying that his, his giving his life for the ransom of many, Jesus is saying the same thing to us as this story that's playing out in Egypt. He is saying or the same thing to his listeners. He is saying that um, you are enslaved. And the Jewish hearers at the time might say, oh, yeah, I, I totally get that we're enslaved. We're enslaved, you know, to the Romans. They're over us. Or we might look and say that it's the religious leaders that we're enslaved to. Oh, boy, this is getting tricky. The religious leaders that we're enslaved to. Uh, these are the people who are keeping their chains over us. And they're the problem. But Jesus is actually coming and saying there's a bigger problem. Just like in Egypt, there was a larger problem. We're actually enslaved not just to the Romans. They may be terrible figures over us and represent the beast. But in a larger way, the dark forces of the world are the things that are affecting us. They're working behind the scenes, reigning and ruling and staining everything in our world. And in a specific passage, Mark 10:45, Jesus is actually talking about how power is used. That power is broken when it comes in underneath the dark forces. So let's, let's look at the context of this passage where Jesus does say uh, the rest of, the, of, of uh, Mark chapter 10. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus called to the disciples and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Jesus is saying in this space, without God, without taking on the, the, the human responsibility of, of reflecting God into the world, our natural inclination is to become like Pharaoh, 
to enslave other people, to use our power in that way, to pull ourselves up by pushing other people down. And by doing so, we actually partner with the dark forces in the world. And this is a, uh, like I said, this is a 2000 years old story, but this might be one of the places where we see the most resonance with our modern world, that we might say power is bad uh, as, you know, children of Nietzsche, that we're very suspicious of power because our history can be looked at as these various figures who have come. And like Jesus says, they lord power over us and they act as tyrants and, and then people are oppressed, people are marginalized, people become victimized by this power. And, and then of course we see this playing out in our world in many different ways. A very old story, uh, but the words of Jesus ring true. This is how power is used in our world. So Jesus continues on verse 43, he says, but it is not so among you to his disciples. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will become your servant. We'll take this downward path like we talked about last week. And whoever wants to be first will become a slave to all. So Jesus says the, the, the goal of being his disciple, as we talked about last week, is actually to take the downward path. And it's not to try to take, we don't take the downward path in order to become a winner, in order to take our place here. It's actually a larger story, if we remember back to the beginning, that we're taking on the story of God, that our God is a servant and our job as his followers is to reflect him into the world, to serve our world. And uh, interestingly, in our society, I think what we've done is we've seen all this power that's over people, that people are victimized and oppressed. And that's terrible. And what we're trying to do, I'd say today in our society, is to give them a voice. But the problem is not with those people. The problem is that we live in this power structure, as Jesus says, that there is a dark force over all of us. And so what happens is even when we give victimized people a voice, sometimes they take their place here. And what we end up with is them using their power in tyrannical ways with things like cancel culture and other things that are happening in our society. Jesus says, our, 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 as followers of him, our, our task is, is very different. It's to stay as a servant, not to become a victim in order to become a tyrant, but to take on the task, the human task in the Bible, which is of serving the world. That's who our God is. And Jesus says, that's what our king does. That's where verse 45 comes in. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, to take his place here, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus is saying is that serving is, is very good and important. And, but to liberate enslaved people, they don't need primarily a pep talk or a guru to follow. What they need to be is liberated. Just like Moses came to liberate uh, his people, Jesus is going to come and do the same. Jesus is God himself who takes this downward path and takes the position of Moses to come and liberate his people and liberate us from these chains that are over us. And as the new Moses, he enters into the story. And in, in chapters one to eight, we see him doing all these amazing signs that God is truly with him. God is stronger than the dark forces in our world. And so what we would expect in the backdrop of this story of Egypt is that the final thing that God would do is he would pay everyone back. He would pay back the Romans and pay back the religious leaders for their terrible leadership. And he'd show God's power, not only over the dark forces, but over them as well. That's what we should be expecting is for Jesus to take their, their most precious thing away from them and pay them back. But in a huge twist on the story, that's not what happens. Rather, Jesus takes his place here. The plague comes on him that came on Pharaoh, that Jesus takes the place of Pharaoh's own son and the innocent one who 
died uh, in Pharaoh's story becomes Jesus. He becomes the innocent one who dies to ransom us, to liberate us from the dark forces that are above us. And so Jesus takes his place here rather than uh, condemning these people. Jesus also becomes the lamb in the story, that his blood is shed to provide salvation and shelter as God shows that he is stronger than the dark forces. And he even changes his Passover story. As the Israelites would annually celebrate the Passover at a meal, Jesus now in the Gospel of Mark makes himself the focus of that story in Mark 14, which reads, As they were eating, they were doing the Passover. Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body, not a lamb's body, but this is my body. And then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That his blood would be the thing that covers us here. From God taking over and paying retribution to the dark forces and all the ways that we partner with them, both as tyrants and as victims by living in this broken place of chaos. God's Jesus' blood covers us as the Lamb's blood covered God's people. And Jesus also takes his place here. Uh, to break these chains of the dark forces over us. So this answers the first part of the question. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die to re, he came to die and live in Israel's story, but in a very strange and new way. It's not liberation through the judgment of these people, but the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And by liberation, or by, by extension, Jesus offers all of us, every person who lives on earth here, liberation from the dark forces and powers. Okay, after a quick board reset, um, we've answered our first question, which is how can we be free? How can we be liberated? But the question now becomes, if Jesus' death pulls us out of slavery to the dark forces, if this is broken, where can we now come to meet God? Um, Where can we be continually set right and re-engage in what it means to be human, that we reflect this God into the world and increase the area of shalom? Well, the answer for this question, where do you meet God for all ancient people, uh, not just the Israelites, would have been in in the temple. That's the place that you go to meet God and become right with him and to be reanimated in the Christian story or in in the Hebrew scriptures into this human project. But here's the thing. You can't just waltz into a temple. Uh, that was a very reverent space, and, and it it's a, became a very dangerous space. If you, became, if you came in in an unworthy way or an unclean way, the people believed that you would then be uh, coming into the presence of this God. And it became all the things that are wonderful about him, his holiness, his love, and his goodness, now become dangerous in that space if we come in, in an unclean manner. And so the way that we make ourselves clean and worthy in the Old Testament is through sacrifice. forgot how to spell it. Sacrifice. This is the way that we allow ourselves to come in to this space. And again, this is a very bloody idea and very foreign to us as 21st century people. But in the Near Eastern, uh, in, in the ancient Near East, this was true of everybody, that they would make sacrifices to come into this space. And here's how sacrifices worked. That the blood of an animal, and I'm not going to try to draw any animals for us, will work like a, a detergent, like a cleaner, or like this eraser. And it does so in two ways. It absorbs the sin or iniquity that is in us, the, the sin and the darkness and injustice, just like this eraser is absorbing the red here. Uh, that's the first way that it, it uh, works. And the second, and maybe this is a bit more foreign to us, 
is that the blood of the animal becomes a holy thing. It becomes aligned with God. So it takes our darkness and sin and injustice into it, but it actually shows once again this same story, that God's holiness through the blood of the animal is greater than the darkness and the injustice and the sin in our world and the sin in our individual lives. And so uh, it showcases the power of God's holiness is greater than the powers that are at work in the kingdom of our world. And here's one last thing to notice about the sacrifice and blood is that different blood has different power. If you read very carefully through the story of the Bible, you'll see, for example, that the blood of a dove has less power than the blood of a sheep, which has less power than the blood of an ox. And so as things get bigger and more expensive, their blood has different power, different ability to absorb uh, the sin. And again, this is a very foreign idea to us, but it's important to our story. But this is the, the place and in, in the books, of, uh, this is the space in a temple using sacrifice that people are now able to come into a relationship and meet God again. This is how they can worship him and reclaim what it means. Israel can reclaim what it means to reflect God into the world and, and bring shalom into these places. So here's the problem. If you remember back to last week in our story, we're fast forwarding now to Jesus. We saw Jesus go to the temple. But he went there not to reinvigorate it, but to curse it. And so he's saying this space that is the temple and the sacrifice system is no longer working. And this is followed up by a longer teaching of Jesus that happens in chapter 13. Here's what he says. Uh, he, he says, as he was going out to the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And so the temple is not just cursed, as we saw Jesus doing last week, but it's also going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, 70 years after Jesus was born, um, this actually happened. The temple was destroyed and all of Jerusalem was destroyed. And so the question that the first readers of the gospel are asking is, if there's no temple, no place that we can go to meet God, where can we offer sacrifice? Where can we become clean? Where can we go to meet God and be reinvigorated into this story? Where's the new temple? And we get a hint at what Jesus is saying, the place of the new temple, in the trial of Jesus. And in all of the Gospels, a key reason for Jesus being put to death is because he tells people that he will, as it says uh, in Mark, destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. This is a key reason that Jesus is put on trial. And so he's saying that the temple that we had is, is now gone. And he's going, but he's going to raise it up again in three days. And in the Gospel of John, it puts it most clearly that Jesus is talking about his body. He says that he's speaking of the temple of his body in John 20, 21. And so Jesus is saying, just as the temple is going to be destroyed, he is also going to be destroyed. He gives up his body to become the new meeting place of people uh, for, for uh, people and God, to fulfill the scripture that he quotes in chapter Mark chapter 12, that the stone that the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. It has become the new cornerstone for a new temple. And so Jesus is that person that we see, a broken temple creating new space for us to come. And he is the new meeting place of God and people. And his body is that first stone in a living temple, the Bible says, which is not geographically located, but it's open to all. 
And again, the Gospel of John has the most vivid language for this, if you read it, that he's, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to be with my Father, where you can be with my Father, sorry, and I'm going to make many rooms where you can come and be with me. And this is all temple language that Jesus is saying, I'm going to set this new place up for you. But his body is not only the new temple, his body or his blood becomes the new sacrifice as well. And the sacrifice of Jesus as the greatest sacrifice of all time goes to absorb our iniquity, do the same thing that I did with this eraser, to take our sin and our impurity and showcase the power of God, that God is truly greater than all the dark powers and forces. This is why Jesus, these two stories are why Jesus had to die, according to the Gospel of Mark. He is the new Moses, liberating people from slavery, from not only dark powers, but all the different um the, the tyrants that come over us. And so Jesus is the new Moses who comes and liberates us from that slavery. He's the new Passover lamb, providing his blood to shelter us from and give us freedom. He's the new cursed child. Although he's innocent, he takes on all the effects of sin and death and living in this broken world. He's the new sacrificial offering, his blood cleansing us so that we can come and meet Jesus and, and re-engage and come from over here into this meeting space of Jesus. And he's the new temple. He's the new place for us to be, uh, to meet God, that his body was destroyed. This is why he had to die, just like the temple was destroyed, in order that we can come to meet God and be reinvigorated in this story where we reflect God into the world. We can be made God right with God, be made right with ourselves, be made right with one another, and regain our identity as images of God and for the kingdom of God to flow out into the world and for us to continue to come back as servants and offer shalom to the world. So this is why Jesus had to die according to the gospel of Mark. He comes as, you know, into this story. He comes as the new Moses liberating his people from slavery. He comes as the new Passover lamb providing his blood for our shelter and our freedom when God is going to show that he is stronger than the dark powers. He comes even as the new cursed child, as Pharaoh's innocent son died for Pharaoh's participation in the dark powers in the world and what he did to God's people. Jesus takes that place as well too, that he is the innocent victim and he takes on the effects of our partnership with the powers of the world in order to liberate us and free us and show that God truly is stronger even in death. Jesus comes as the new sacrificial offering that his blood is cleansing us so that we're able to come back into the presence of God, to meet with him, to worship him, and to be remade as human beings, to have the bonds connected with God, reconnected with God, ourselves and with each other and with our world. And he comes as the new temple, the space where we can meet God and be sent back out into the world as uh, agents not of um, ty- tyranny, but as agents of shalom, to bring God's loving service and his kingdom to flow out into the world. And as bizarre and wild as this imagery might be to us and and the death of Jesus might sound to us, of course, it's a more than 2000 year old story Um, by sharing this story with us. And by entering it, Jesus is is also inviting us into this story and asking us to take it on as our own and listen for resonances for our modern life. So what might be some of the relevance of this story to us today? I'd like to close with this. In the Gospel of Mark, there are two types of people who get Jesus, who are open to Jesus being not only God, but to to dying. Um, And the first group of people are those whose lives follow a downward trajectory. 
These are the people who get Jesus. The characters that we've met so far in the Gospel of Mark are those who have had their bodies broken. Those who are feeling and understand that their, their lives are under the effects of dark powers, that, that uh, they are demon-possessed, that they're around people who have died who shouldn't have, that they are attacked and occupied by the kingdom of darkness. These are the people who understand Jesus. They get that they are enslaved by a force much stronger than themselves. And then they get that they need God, that they need not just a pep talk, like I said, but they need healing and new life and someone to liberate them as God in the world. They understand that by themselves, they could not be great reflections of this God, that they need to be remade and brought back into relationship with God in order to bring shalom into the world. These are the people who get Jesus. And so if that's you, if that's your life, you feel like someone who hasn't been blessed by the world. You don't sit here, but you sit as these kind of people, people who are oppressed, someone whose life is on a downward trajectory. Your dreams, you know, haven't worked out for you. I invite you to hear Jesus' words from the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you if your life is on a downward path. And he says, because you will actually receive the kingdom of God. Blessed are you because when your life is on this path of downward mobility, of servants, of being the last, you actually have a vantage point to get Jesus and to get this whole story in a way that those of us whose lives are set on an upward trajectory don't. And I invite you, if that's your life, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 50th time, to receive Jesus, all of him, his kingship, these wonderful, amazing things that he's doing, the healing that he provides, but also his path of downward mobility and even his death as good news for you. Good news that frees us. Good news that cleanses us. Good news that draws us back into God's family in the presence of God. And good news that remakes each of us, blesses us, and re-releases us as agents of blessing in our world. By contrast, why do many of us miss the relevance of Jesus' life? Well, it's because uh, the, the Gospel of Mark would say it's because our hearts are actually set on a different trajectory. We're set on an upward trajectory. We're trying to live a hero's journey with our lives. And maybe we're battling to stay on top of the heap. Maybe it's through, you know, money that I'm trying to do this or through power or through trying to stay young or through social media. This is the way that we're trying to win in the world. We're not interested in going in this downward path where, where our lives are set towards going up and actually becoming more like Pharaoh than we might want to admit. And like I said, this, this makes us miss Jesus' ministry and the second half of Jesus' ministry and his life in the Gospel of Mark, but also the gravity of his death. Because at best, if our lives are set on this upward trajectory, what could Jesus come to do for us? His all these things that he's done uh, are only to help us aid us in our lives of upward trajectory. So at best, Jesus can come to die, but he could only do so for my sins so I can be free to achieve my dreams and ensure that my life continues on this path. And so the blessing of God, you know, can rain down on me so I can take my place uh, uh, at the top of the heap. And at least, uh, or, or as someone confessed to me this past week as they, in email, they said, so I could just be comfortable. I don't want to be at the top of the heap. Maybe I don't want to take this path of downward mobility, but I just let them live here. So I just want to be comfortable. And I appreciated that person's email so much because isn't that you and me? Isn't that our lives? Maybe we don't want to be at the top, but we want to be comfortable. And so we still reject the downward path and, and we still miss the gravity and importance of Jesus' life, or we use it for our own means rather than to enter this beautiful story. So for those of us who find ourselves in this second group, 
the text encourages us to do five things in order to be able to see this Jesus. First is just to take the time to look at him. Take the time to consider what's happening in this story. That, you know, if you look at all the, the Gospels, including the Gospel of Mark, it took the disciples a really long time to warm up to and understand what Jesus is doing. And so would you in this season take some time to look at who Jesus is, maybe rereading through the Gospel of Mark again and again, especially the second half, as we see Jesus' life taking this downward path. Look at him like the centurion did, and, and that can liberate us from uh, the, the path of upward mobility that we might be on. The second thing that it encourages us to do is to, to step away from our self-liberation projects where we are living for our own kingdom and our own story, where we're struggling on the path of upward mobility to, to tell stories of power and to become powerful in our lives. And I think one of the ways that we do this in our world is the struggle for control in our lives and in our world. I think this has been one of the biggest battles I know in my life, but as I talk to people for all of our lives during COVID, that there's so many things that are out of control that we seek to control just one or two things. I was chatting with a friend this past week, and uh, he, he said that his wife freaked out about a small amount of money that he spent. And he was so confused. He was like, why do you even care that I spent this $40 on, on this stupid thing? And in the end, after a long conversation, she actually broke down and cried. And she just told him, look, I just feel like everything in my life is out of control. And I just want to control one this outsider's reaction to this tiny little problem just because of this need for control, which is just a symptom and, and something I think so we can all relate to in this time of, of the pandemic. But the symptom that we have of this need for control to be on an upward trajectory, to be here. But the Bible story is saying that these are just false. They, they only can put us here. We'll ultimately be enslaved to these other powers. We'll be participating with the kingdom of darkness and actually bringing their reign and rule more and more into the world as we try our self-liberation projects, as we struggle for power and control. Where might those stories be in your life? If, if you're a person who's living here, taking a good look at your life, where are the places that you are feeling out of control? Where are the places you're struggling for power? These might be the exact places that you need to instead look at the life of Jesus. So look at Jesus. Turn away from our self-liberation projects. And then the third thing is just to cry out. You know, in the story of uh, Mark, this is really where the change happens from here to here. When people see themselves crying out to Jesus, they drop in front of him in faith like the paralyzed man. Or they cry out to him in the storms of, of life. Or, or people sprint to him and kneel like the demon-possessed man. Or they fall at his feet and beg him earnestly like Jairus. Or maybe they just sneak up and touch him like the woman who is uh, bleeding and say that you are the son of God. And this is the call to each of us to cry out to Jesus and then let his death become the liberation and the welcome into God's family, the thing that remakes you into the person that you are. And then the final call, the fifth thing, is to join him on this path of downward mobility. As Jesus says, to pick up our cross and follow him, that we plunge back into the world, meeting Jesus, not as liberators ourselves, not as kings, not as anyone who can tackle the dark powers by ourselves, but as people that are remade and renewed as someone whose life reflects our glorious king and gives up our lives to those who are still in bondage to the dark power, that we cry out to the world, just as it says in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn, 
turn away from your own self-liberation projects and believe in the good news of our king and our kingdom. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this time and uh, we thank you for this story. I pray that in some way I've, I've done it justice. And we do pray as people who live today that our Christians, maybe we've heard this story so many times that your death is good news that it's become stale. Or as just people who live in the 21st century that we find this so bizarre. Um, we ask that you would reinvigorate this story for us, that the death of Jesus, as, as odd as it might be, actually becomes good news to us. And we can see ourselves in this story. So help us to follow you on the downward path. I know that many of us are, are on the path of upward mobility, or maybe we would just say middle class mobility, where we're trying to use you and your death for our own purposes. So would you enlighten us to those areas in our lives where we're trying to take control, where we're becoming more like Pharaoh than you, the servant who comes to liberate. And we ask that you would open those areas up to our lives, that we might see who you are and what you've done as good news. And remake us, we pray, even as we start to sing together, as we give of our finances, as we let go of control, as we reach out to other people in our community for prayer and say, I'm, I'm on the downward path in this area of my life. Would you pray? Would you cry out with me to God? We ask that all of these things would train us to see life in the way that you do and to, to accept and to love you as our Lord and Savior. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.